But Jesus said, the time is coming when all these things will be completely destroyed. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Teacher, they asked, when will this happen? What sign will show, what sign will show us that these things are about to take place? He replied, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and saying, the time has come. But don't believe them. And when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately. Then he added, nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and there will be famines and plagues in many lands. And there will be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. But before all of this occurs, there will be a time of great persecution. You will be dragged into synagogues and prisons, and you will stand trial before kings and governors, because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you. For I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be, will be able to reply or refute you. Even those closest to you, your parents, your brothers and sisters, your relatives and friends, they will betray you. They will even kill some of you. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will win your souls. See, this is why I don't like this, this passage. It is, it is complicated. But there is a lot going on here. And to a certain extent, we, we're going to have to do a little bit of a, a, of a historical lesson for us to really understand what Jesus is really getting at and some of the things that, that, that are happening. Um, as we know, and as we've been preaching for the last almost two months, Jesus and his ministry, this is getting towards the end of Jesus' ministry. And in fact, I think next week we're going to be closer to the, the crucifixion narrative, um, but probably as close as we get in the calendar year before the time of Lent. And um, Jesus is working, literally going up. If you ever had the privilege of, of, of being in Israel and Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem is literally on a hill. So when you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up the hill. And the verses, um, there's Psalms, Psalm 100, 101, 102. There's about 10 of them that traditionally you would, you would sing these psalms as you were taking the steps to go up to the city of Jerusalem. So some of these things are the things that are happening right now. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And of course, we know what Jerusalem signifies for people in this time, right? This is the city where the temple is. This is the city that is at the center of God's economy, at the center of God's thoughts. And as far as they were concerned, and as far as their imagination allowed them to, it was the city that was at the center of the entire world. So for them and for us to understand that Jesus is going on his way to Jerusalem, this is specifically Jesus coming from the margins, right? Coming from Nazareth. If you think of Nazareth, it's about a two and a half hour drive from where Jerusalem is right now. Obviously, maybe a day or two days if you're walking or going, um, you know, in, in, in a caravan. So for Jesus to be coming from the outskirts of Israel 
up into Jerusalem, this is really signifying that the plot is about to thicken, right? And if you think of this, maybe a lot more the way that we would think of watching The Crown or Game of Thrones or House of Cards or anything of those more political thrillers that, that we can watch, this is exactly what is happening. Jesus coming closer to Jerusalem is Jesus coming closer to the center of power, which is dangerous. Certainly dangerous for Jesus himself and for his followers. And I thought uh, Will did such a good job last week explaining the difference between the Pharisees, which were teachers of the law, and the Sadducees, which were the people that were in charge of upkeeping the temple, but they were specifically in Jerusalem, right? So when Jesus is coming in and dealing now with the religious people of the time, these are really powerful people, these are really rich people, and these are people that have a long vested interest in remaining in power. And Jesus is about to rock their world altogether. And, he's, and he further does this in, in this passage. So he is about to do a lot of different things. And there's something interesting that happens here that I think it's a little bit of a foreshadowing. We've seen this throughout the history of the church. But whenever God's people and God's economy marry the centers of human power, we see that God's people lose their ability to be effective on this earth. We are called to be God's people for a God that is a God for the nations, not just for Jerusalem. And if you look back and you look at the Psalms and you look back and you look at the promise that God made Abraham that he would be the father of the nations, not just of a specific group, right? So, there is a lot here, and I think one of the things that Jesus is about to do is he's about to say, look, we cannot have God's purposes be completely and totally aligned with systems of current earthly power because that is not the way God's purpose and God's economy works. God is not dependent on any one country. God is not dependent on any one economy. God is not dependent on any one earthly system. God is beyond them and above them and through them for all people, right? So with that in mind, let's go into the, into the, 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 the passages one more time. And I'm hoping to kind of give you a little bit of an explanation. And then I have a few lessons that I have from this passage. We'll see, we'll, we'll see what we think of it. Um, the very first thing that we see in the verse is Jesus is coming in and his disciples are talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. So there's something really fascinating happening here. This is the Her Herodian temple. If you think about the history of the temples, Bible quiz time, who, who built the first temple? Solomon. Solomon. David wanted to build it, but God told David what? Nope, you have blood on your hands. Right? No one that has blood in their hands is going to build the temple. So, so his son, Solomon, builds the temple. And we know that at that point, it was probably one of the richest and most magnificent buildings ever built, ever. But then, the temple is destroyed and is sacked. Do you remember by whom? Philistines. Huh? Philistines? No, not the Philistines, the Babylonians. The Babylonians come in and they just completely sack the temple, right? And this is right around the time of Isaiah, of Jeremiah. This is all of those things are happening. 
So then the Babylonians come in, and by this point, Israel has split up amongst the two tribes in the north and the ten tribes in the south. Sorry, the other way around. The ten tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south. So they have the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. So the Babylonians come, and they grab all of the south, which includes Jerusalem. They grab all those people, and they they bring them captives to the Babylonian territories. Interestingly, that happened for about 70 years. In the middle of that, there was another empire that arose and took over Babylonia. Do you remember who? Persians? Persians, the Syrians, yes, Persians. And then they come in and great, um, the, uh, the king Cyrus is the king that is the one now the king over all the people, including the captive Israelites who are now part of the Persian empire. So this is Iraq, Iraq, the, what is now Iraq is Babylonia. Uh, the Persian Empire is what is now Iran, right? So just to contextualize what's happening. And then um, Nehemiah comes over to the king, King Cyrus, and says, Hey, let my people go. Can we please return to Jerusalem? It's been way too long. And interestingly, the king says, Yes, go back. So Nehemiah grabs a ton of people. They go back to Jerusalem, and they start rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And if you read Nehemiah, all of that's happening there. So you have Nehemiah, and then you have Ezra, who was the high priest. And of course, Ezra is interested in rebuilding the temple. So with the help of the people around them, they start rebuilding the temple. And this is going to be known as the second temple, right? But here's something interesting. The tribes from the north come down to, 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 to Judea, to Israel, to uh, Jerusalem, and they say to Ezra and to Nehemiah, hey, we want to help you rebuild this temple because, you know, it's our God too. And Nehemiah and Ezra says, no, this is something that only we are going to do. And you know who these people then become, the ones in the north? They become the Samaritans. So the animosity between the Samaritans and the Israelites goes back to the temple, to the building of the second temple. So they build the temple, but it was by no means Solomon's temple. It was great. It was fine. It worked. But it wasn't this majestic, beautiful thing. So then King Herod arises. And by this point now, we have another empire. Who's the empire? Rome. Rome. Man, you guys are good. So we, 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 got, we got our history here, the, our Babylonic history. So now Rome is the empire. King Herod has arisen. King Herod is really leading the Sadducees in that time. And Herod decides that his legacy is going to be to be a builder. To this day, there are buildings that King Herod built in Jerusalem and in Israel that still stand to this day. My house in Brunswick, Maine, was built in 1940, and it is quickly falling apart. <laughs> but King Herod's buildings, many of them are still standing till today. I've had the great fortune of, of being there, and when you look at the base of, of, of the temple, which is, that's the only part of the temple that exists of today, just the base. The way that these blocks were cut, I, like they didn't have electricity, I don't understand how can you build such a beautiful square block that is massive and so perfectly aligned that you cannot fit a sheet of paper through those, through those blocks, right? And that still sticks in. I, I don't understand how they did it. It is just amazing. So anyways, King Herod starts building this temple, and he is committed to bring it back to Solomon's time. And he builds the temple, and it is beautiful. It is white, it has a huge tall tower. The temple originally was 14 acres. He's like, nah, 14 acres is not enough, 36 acres. 
So he goes, almost triples the size of the temple. He starts bringing the best mason, um, uh, mason builders and decorators and jewel workers. And this thing is white, bright. And if you're walking, again, remember, we're walking up to Jerusalem. You see this structure with the sun in the desert. It is just everyone can see it. And there's this huge high tower. Remember when Jesus was being tempted in the desert? Satan brought him to the top of the tower. This is the, the top of this tower of the Herodian temple, right? It is still the second temple, but it is Herod's temple. So this is their pride and joy. This is telling other people, hey, we're not primitives out here. Yes, we're not Rome, we're not Istanbul, but we are Jerusalem and we have our buildings. So that's why the disciples are saying, look at the majestic stonework of the temple and the decorations on the wall. It was beautiful. It was seriously something to write home about. If postcards were made at that point, there was postcards at the temple, I assure you. <laughs> and then Jesus, I love Jesus. He's, he's just poking the bear sometimes. He says, the time is coming when all of these things will be complete, completely admonished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Can you imagine that? It would be like someone coming to Brunswick, Maine and saying, your beautiful Curtis Memorial Library, it's going to be gone. Right? It hurts. For those of us who go to the library often and that just love our town library, it hurts. It would be like if you've been to the Bowdoin College campus and it has the chapels with the two towers. Every single stone in that chapel is going to be gone. Jesus is actually doing something here interesting. And he's saying this big project that all of you have going on, this big intention that all of you have going on to acquire um, uh, influence and, and power, all of it will be destroyed. Wow. Next one. Teacher, they said, when, when will this happen? And then he goes on to say, well, when there's wars coming and there's a country warring against another and there's an earthquake, and then they're going to start persecuting you. And it just goes on into this deep, dark narrative, right? And I'll tell you, I don't know, I don't know if you're going to make the, the same mistake I first did. When I first read this passage, I was like, ah, oh, this sounds so dark. And, and it is. But I assumed that Jesus was talking about the end of the times when he said that. I don't need to embarrass you, but if you, like me, assume that this passage is about the end of times, raise your hand. Okay, most of us, right? But look at what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about necessarily the end of times. What is he talking about? He's talking about the destruction of the second temple. Which we know when that happened. It happened in 67 CE. Rome comes in, and they completely sack the temple. And they destroy it to the ground. In fact, Herod stopped building this temple right around the, the year 10 CE, the year 10 of the Common Era. And in 67, the Romans come in and they completely destroy it. If you've been to Rome, there's actually depictions of Romans carrying the menorah, which was built out of gold, and taking it out of the temple and parading it through the streets of Rome because the Romans came in and they completely destroyed the temple. Jesus was talking and at that point was forecasting the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 67 CE. This is not really about the end of times today. This is about the end of their times in that point. Mm -hmm. What's even more interesting, if you remember, and sometimes, especially now that we have our Bibles more in our cell phones than on the actual Bibles, 
The best way to understand the book of Luke is to understand Luke Acts. Luke and Acts go together. They were written by the same person. They were written at the same time. If I can grab the Bible and just like take out the book of Acts and take out the book of Luke and put them together, that would be one single volume, right? We know that the book of Luke was written maybe around the year 90 CE. So this is Luke is already writing this after the destruction of Jerusalem. Further, if you think about this, think about, think about all the things that Jesus said that was going to happen. And then tell me that this doesn't sound exactly like what we see in the book of Acts, right? Next one. Uh, after all that. Many will come and say, I am the Messiah, and the time has come, but do not believe them. When you hear wars and insurrections, don't panic. That was happening in the book of Acts. These things must first, place, first take place, but then the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Earthquakes. Remember there was a huge earthquake where Paul was um, in Philippi and he was in, and he was in jail. And the entire, the entire cell fell around him. That's one of the references there. Famines. There was a huge famine in Jerusalem after the fall of Jerusalem. So much so that the churches around um, the area were collecting money to send over to Jerusalem. Plagues and many lands, there will be terrifying things and miraculous signs from heaven. Do you remember the work of Paul and Peter healing people all over the place? There will be a great time of persecution and you will be dragged into synagogues. Philip, remember, he was dragged into the synagogue and Paul was in prison all the time. Paul went and spoke directly to the king and remember what Paul's story in Acts says, that the king was astounded by the wisdom that was coming out of Paul's mouth. But we, uh, next one. <clears throat> but this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So, what is the point of all this? Now that I've given you all of this contextual idea, right? We have this beautiful city, this beautiful temple. We have a lot of power. Jesus is coming in and he's saying, do not even look at it because all of it is going to be destroyed. But then you will Suffering. Jesus, this story is less so about the end of times and more about suffering. And I think all of us are pretty acquainted with suffering nowadays. Interestingly, not that this was not the case before, but one of the things the pandemic has done is that it has universalized our entire understanding of suffering and how we experience this world. We've all suffered. And I think there's a few lessons for us in this passage. One, and maybe this is, most, this is more for me, so if this is not for you, you can ignore it. But this is for me. You are not your projects. You're not your accomplishments. You're not your failures. You are not what you're building. You are not your children. You are not the temple. You are not the city. At this point, the disciples and the people around Jerusalem have completely identified and attached their identity to the majesticness of the temple. So when Jesus is saying, not one stone will remain, that is an attack to their identity. And I don't know about you, but for me, I immediately connect myself and identify myself and attach myself to my projects. 
And if, they, if they're successful, then I'm successful. If they're a failure, then I'm a failure. But I think one of the first things that Jesus is telling us here is that you are not your projects. And they can be good things. But how often, I don't know if you do this, I do this. How often do I ascribe my daughter's success to my success? And my daughter's decisions and choices to my decisions and choices. And they're young. Some of you have adult children. You are not your children. You are not your choices. You are not their choices. You are not your projects. You're not your job. When I first realized and was able to release my identity from my job to me, that was one of the most freeing things that I could have ever done. I am not my job. I am glad for my job. We're a one-income family. It feeds us all four of us and the dog. I am glad for my job, but I am not my job. It can be great. It can be not great, and I've had them both. I'm neither. You're not your job. You're not your projects. Whatever it is that you're building, yeah, it's not who you are. You are God's. You're God's child. And your promise and your land and your inheritance, it's coming, right? Danielle read it for us. That's our <coughs> price. That's our promise. Not right now. And let, me, and let me just give you this in perspective. If your entire identity and your entire promise is just your job, then that is what it's going to be. Just your job. But you're not going to be ready to receive the coming inheritance that is coming for us. Because all you were doing right now is waiting for this job and for the fruits of this job, this project, this building, whatever it is that you're doing right now. <clears throat> Regarding this, so much of contemporary Christianity in this side of the world, because we have had such privileged lives, it really has become an escapism from suffering, hasn't it? We have built a Christianity that is really good to deliver us from suffering, but not to teach us how to suffer. And this is the point number two. And this is exactly what Jesus was saying. Notice what Jesus promised them. Persecution. Jail. Be brought into and have to speak before kings and synagogues. Surviving famine and war and plagues. This is Jesus' promise to Jesus' followers. This one doesn't sell too well on Facebook, does it? Come join us. I promise you persecution and famine and marginalization. The, the thing that Jesus is telling us is the suffering is universal to all of us. If you are a follower of Christ, if you're walking the way of Jesus, you will experience suffering. I am not telling you otherwise. I wish I could. I wish I could tell you that you will not suffer. I wish I could tell myself that I will not suffer. But instead, I think what Jesus is doing is doing something so much better. He's telling us that we will suffer, but he's also telling us how we will suffer and how we will persevere through our suffering. Suffering is going to be universal. Suffering is going to be all around us. 
I find it interesting that Jesus also attaches this suffering to parents and siblings and friends. To me, whenever there is like some kind of suffering that is attached to, to that level of your, your intimate connection, to me, that's the one that hurts the most, right? When, you know, God forbid you get in a car accident and you're dealing with the car and the insurance and everyone's okay, that's annoying and that's a lot. But when you are fighting with your parents or with your siblings, that hurts. And Jesus is talking about that level of suffering. We will suffer. We will suffer. In part because one of the things that walking the Jesus way does is that it takes you outside of the big path where everyone is doing and going and looking for and is bringing you to a different way and it is asking you, Jesus is asking me and you to reprioritize our projects. To think about the kingdom of God as our project, not the temple. Not our families, not our houses, not our jobs, not our businesses. To think about the kingdom of God. When you do that, you will suffer. Your family won't get it. Your parents won't get it. Your friends won't always get it. Lastly, the antidote to suffering. Let's go back to the very last verse. Oh, sorry, the second to last, and then the last. Not a hair of your head will perish. Does it mean that it won't hurt? It will. But you will not perish. You will survive. And the last one. By standing firm, you will win your souls. The invitation of Jesus in this passage is to persevere through suffering. To learn how to suffer well. To understand that we all suffer, but that God is our protector that God is our shield, that God is on our side, that God has a purpose and a plan for us, that God is looking out for us, that God is our tower and our rock, that it is in God's wings that we fly, and that it is God's shadow that is all around us, and that yes, even in the midst of great suffering, God is still there, and He is delivering us, and will make sure that we not perish, because by our perseverance, by us standing firm, by us continuing to do the walk with Jesus, one step at a time, one moment at a time, then is when we win our souls. The antidote to suffering is endurance. Sometimes, sometimes we have to go through the storm to understand the blessing that is awaiting for us on the other side of the storm. And let me tell you, I am terrified of this idea. I don't want this. I want Jesus to just say, you follow me and life is going to be great. Yes, I want that one. That's the Jesus that I want. But the Jesus that he is telling us right now, he's saying sometimes you will go through the storm and lives and God's biggest blessing bestowed upon you await for you on the other side of the storm. And you will not perish. Whatever suffering that you're going through right now, God is bigger than your suffering and you can endure it. Whatever great pain, psychological pain, moral pain, whatever it is that you're enduring right now, God is bigger than your pain, and you can endure it, and you will get through it. 
God's promise for you is to deliver you from pain on the other side of the storm, not necessarily and not always around the storm. When famine comes, when pain comes, not one hair in your head will perish. That's God's promise for us this morning. Not that you will not suffer. You will. But that you will not perish. I wish I had a better message for us this morning. But th- th- this is, you know, what, what, what this week is telling us. And this is what the, 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 the Revised Common Lectionary is giving us. I don't know if you're going through a lot of suffering. And if you are, God's message to, for you today is to persevere. Don't give up. Continue walking. Continue loving. Continue being merciful. Do not allow your heart to get hard. Allow your heart to, be, to remain soft and gentle and compassionate towards yourself and towards others because you, you will not perish. God will deliver you from suffering. God delivered the Israelites from suffering. We know because we're here, we continue on on a 2,000-year-old tradition. After this happened, here we are, 2,000 years later, we have persevered. I don't know what you're going through, and I don't know what awaits you afterwards, but you will not perish. God is with you, and God is your deliverer. Let's pray. Father, we want to say and acknowledge that we are not our projects, we're not our buildings, we're not the great things that we have accomplished, we're not our accomplishments and we're not our failures. God, we, we are yours. We want to ask you to work in us and change in us so that we might let go of our attachments to our success and our projects and so that we might attach ourselves to you and to who you say that we are. And Father, you have called us good. You have called us acceptable. You have called us redeemed. You have called us your friends. You have called us loved ones and accepted by you. So let us as a church work together to develop that identity in us. Not in our projects, not in our temples, not in our houses. And Lord, for those of us who might be going through suffering this morning, you have not promised us that we will not suffer, but you promised us that we will be delivered and that we will not perish. So Lord, we are calling out to your promise this morning. Would you provide deliverance from suffering for those of us who are in the middle of pain? Will you make sure that we know that your hand is over us and that your presence is over us and that in the middle of everything that we could be going through, that you are there, that you are present. In the middle of pain, there you are. In the middle of the storm, there you are. There is no place on this earth and in our minds where you are not. So let us realign our hearts, our souls, and our spirits to be awakened to the reality that you are everywhere, even in the middle of our suffering, and deliver us, God, from our suffering. Give us perseverance. Increase our faith. Increase our stamina, so that we too 
might be found faithful in the very, very last day. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The band is going to come up and we're going to sing. Elaine is going to lead us in communion. I invite you all to come and partake of communion with us.